Right now, we're going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, in our series on Sunday mornings, as, and we're following Paul as he takes us on an exploration of the mystery of the gospel and of the church. And this morning, we come to what one author calls the key and the high point of the whole letter of Ephesians. Another author refers to these verses as the fundamental theological undergirding of the whole letter, and perhaps the, the most significant ecclesiological text or theology of the church in the entire New Testament. Um, in other words, this passage is kind of a big deal. Um, this, this is the heart and guts, really, of this letter and of what Paul has to say about the church. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You can find it in your... Bibles, or you can just find the passage printed on the insert that's in your bulletin. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we come before you now to ask for your help, to plead with you for your grace and mercy, that we would understand this important passage that But more than that, not that we would just understand with our minds, but that it would be applied to our hearts by your Spirit. And that we would be changed by it. Help us to believe even now that your word, it never returns to you empty. It always accomplishes the purposes for which you set it forth. And so we pray this morning. That with this word, you would heal us, you would comfort us, you would challenge us, even rebuke us. With this word, we pray that you would give us hope and lift our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, we gather together today and some come through these doors weary and exhausted. Others come facing trials in their lives and feel like no one understands. Some come into this room walking closely with you. Others are wondering in the midst of their pain where you are. Some come in this room full of faith, expecting you to act, expecting you to change people by your word, and others come wondering if your word is even true. Some come wondering with far more personal questions, wondering if this good news of the gospel, that Jesus is our peace, wondering if that can be true of them with everything they know about themselves. Father, however we come this morning, we pray now that you would help us by your Spirit to understand though we come from different walks of life, facing different things, that we're, that we're really all the same. Because we're all far more broken, far more fallen, than we know, than we can even imagine about ourselves. And so every one of us needs the same thing. We all need Jesus. We need to know that though we're far more broken than we can imagine because of His person and work, we are also at the same time far more loved and far more secure, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so God, we pray that you would sink this good news deep into our hearts, that we would be changed forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you go to the grocery store and you're checking out and you pay with a $20 bill or anything higher, you can expect that that person working the cash register is going to check that bill, right? They'll either hold it up to the light to look for that little strip that runs through it or they'll get that magic pin out that they use and, you know, draw on it or what. I, I still don't know what that does, but I guess it changes colors or something. But um, they're checking it to see if it's authentic, to see if it's genuine, to see if it's the real thing, making sure that it's not counterfeit, right? I, I haven't seen the magic pin thing work, but I was behind the grocery store not too long ago uh, when someone got busted with a counterfeit bill. It was awesome. Um, I, I mean, bad for that guy, but great for me because I always wanted to see it happen, you know. And, and it's really not the point of this story, but, you know, eventually the manager got involved and all this kind of stuff. And one thing was very clear, though, with that little exchange that happened. I can tell you the full story later. But um, they were not letting that guy pay with that bill. Um, he was not going to walk out of the, that grocery store unless he provided some other form of payment, because what they had in their hands, they knew it wasn't authentic, it wasn't the real thing, it wasn't genuine, right? For Paul here, the proof of the power of the gospel is that people who could not get along now live at peace with one another, right? He held up to the light this unique community, the church that he's writing about, made up of wildly different people, right? They are living in peace with one another. And that is the authentic proof 
that gospel power has been unleashed into the world. That's what Paul's talking He's been talking about the power of the gospel in all the verses that have come before this, right? And then you get to, to these verses, and he pulls out all the stops, right? Power that bursts through barriers. Power that knocks down walls, right? Abolishes the law and its regulations. Power, creative power to create a new man. But here's the deal. As soon as I say all of that, the cynicism in your heart and in mine starts to kick in. Because we feel like we have been waiting for years to see this. But we have been disappointed again and again with the church. And for some of us, though we're, some of you are even afraid to admit it and scared to say it out loud, you've stopped believing in the power of the gospel. And this morning, I want us to look at this passage, and for those of us who claim to be Christians, I want us to rediscover our belief in the power of the gospel. And for those of you this morning who find yourselves either unsure about Christianity, or or, uh, unsure about what you believe even, um, or struggling to believe, I want you to see the radical hope that the gospel offers us this morning. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. To realize the power of the gospel to bring us together, we have to do three things. We have to remember something, we have to rest in someone, and we have to practice something. So first you need to remember something. In verse 11 and 12, Paul uses that very word. Remember. Remember something. And what Paul is telling us to remember in verses 11 through 13 is our identity. Who we were and who we are. Please pay close attention to what I'm about to say. If you're taking notes, don't take notes right now because you need to hear this. Um, Your doing, your your actions or or your behavior, your your thoughts, your motivations, your, your speech, your doing always proceeds or flows out of your being, who you are. See, all of us in this room necessarily have something in our lives that we are looking to for our identity. This is really, really important because as much as we want to believe that we're autonomous people, right, that we shape and define our own realities, the truth is that everything you say and everything you do and everything you think is a product of your identity, who you understand yourself to be at any given moment. You and I never speak, never act, never think in a vacuum. Paul is writing to a group of Gentile Christians, and twice in verse 11 and verse 12, he says, remember, right? And instead of getting real detailed with everything that he says in those verses, Paul is basically saying this, remember that you were spiritually homeless, right? You were completely disjointed. You were completely out of place. You were strangers to the law and the promises. You were a ship at sea without a rudder. Right? You were separate from Jesus. You were not citizens. You were without hope and without God. And then in verse 13, Paul jumps from the past, where we were, to the future and to the present. Right, Who we are now. Verse 13, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You were outside. You were a stranger. You were homeless. But, through the blood of Jesus, you have come all the way in. Through the blood of Jesus, you who were spiritually homeless have come home. 
is what he's saying. You pull all of that together, and Paul is saying, you need to pause, you need to stop, you need to get your bearings. You need to think this stuff out, you need to reflect on this stuff. This is who you are, this is your story, this is the narrative that defines you. You are lost, but found. You see, you can forget any other possible application right now. It's your identity that needs to get settled. When that gets settled, the application becomes obvious, right? Over Thanksgiving, this past Thanksgiving, I took my family to my home in Baton Rouge. Uh, go Tigers. Um, it's so nice having the pulpit when nobody can shout anything back. Um, but my, in Baton Rouge, at my parents' house, my, my mom's father is now living with my parents because he has dementia, Right? And a lot of you have experienced loved ones going through this very thing. So I really hope that I don't trigger any bad experiences or pain for you this morning. But look, it, it was just heartbreaking being there with him. Heartbreaking to the point, at, at times, the only thing you could do was to laugh at it just to keep from crying. Right? We were there for just three days. And in those days... I can, my grandfather asked me who I was at least a hundred times in those three days. You know, sometimes he would ask me who I was and not a full minute would go by before he asked me who I was again, right? He would constantly be asking questions over and over again, trying to remember anything he could latch on to to remember. He was trying to remember something, anything to get his bearings. I mean, what day is it? Do I live here? Do I have a wife? Who are you? How old am I? Over and over again, asking those questions. Here's my point. He was grasping for his bearings. You and I rightly look at that, I think, and it breaks our hearts. To see, I mean, it's so sad to see that kind of decay in a person, right? Breakdown. But let me shift this on you. Why does Paul keep saying to you this morning, remember it's because he knows that you and I are prone to forget that we are prone to spiritual dementia in our lives. Prone to forget who we are because he knows that though we have come in through the blood of Jesus, though we have come all the way home in Jesus, he knows that we are still prone to losing our bearings. And when we do, and when we do, because we always have to speak and act and think out of some kind of identity factor, when we forget, we start grasping at anything and everything within our reach to tell us who we are, to tell us that we matter, right? to tell us that we have value, to tell us that we have purpose in this life. And, and listen, if you're here this morning and, and you've never trusted in Jesus, I do want to just tell you one thing. Don't ignore or push down those feelings of emptiness and homelessness that unsettled feeling that, that, that says there must be more than this. You know, I did that for a long, long time. And I found a lot of things to numb that gnawing, exhausting, unsettling feeling. And I just want to encourage you to pay attention to it this morning. Because whatever that is, it matters. It means that you are made for home, and where you are right now is not home. Now, second, in verses 14 through 18, Paul is telling us 
and where to find rest in someone. Really, verses 14 through 18, what they are, is they're a further description for Paul of what he said in verse 13, that we have been brought near through the blood of Christ. But here's how I want to help us think about it this morning. Back in verse 11, Paul tells us that the Jewish people, the circumcision, right, that's in quotes, called the Gentiles the uncircumcised. What is that? I mean, it's a name-calling. Maybe it's sophisticated theological name-calling, but that's really what it is. It's a name-calling. And I want to ask you this. How do they or we, how does anyone get to a place where they label individuals or a group of people and treat them as inferior? It's a good question, because like we already said, nothing you say, think, or do happens in a vacuum. It flows out of your identity, and this is how it works. We find something about ourselves or about a group of people that we find to be admirable, right? Some kind of trait. For the Jewish people, it was their nationality, their possession of the law and promises, the ceremonies like circumcision. But you can grasp for your identity at all kinds of things, right? Where you go or where you went to school, what neighborhood you live in, your salary, your race, how you educate, your children, what styles of worship you prefer, where your family's from, your political persuasion. I mean, we could go on for some time, but I think that that list probably offends enough people today. The point is that when we find something admirable about ourselves or our group, we latch on to it for our identity. And we bolster that sense of identity by feeling superior to everyone else around us who doesn't share that trait. And then we start treating everyone else as inferior. Pretty soon, name-calling and a spirit of judgmentalism and an attitude that's holier than thou, it's just the natural flow. It's flowing right out of your identity. You extrapolate that line a little bit, right? And you can trace it all the way to Holocaust and to genocides and to racism and to terrorism. It's black and white. It's absolutes, politics, race, and your kids' education. They aren't just things that get moralized by you. They they get absolutized by you. I don't even know if that's a word. But it's us versus them. It's good and bad, right? It's superior and inferior. You've heard your say yourself say it before, even if you didn't say it out loud. You've thought to yourself, they are what's wrong with this country. They are what's wrong with this church. They don't care for their children like we care for our children. They, they, they. Now, what in the world does all that have to do? Third point's a lot quicker than this point, so rest, rest easy. Um, But what does all that stuff have to do with this point, rest in someone? You know what we're really grasping, at, grasping for when we latch on to these identity factors? <clears throat> we're grasping for peace. See, just a glance at verses 14 through 18 will tell you that peace, both explicitly and implicitly, dominates those verses. But the peace in view, it's more than just a cessation of hostility. Let me read you a brief quote from one author. It's not surprising that Paul summarizes the gospel by saying Christ is our peace. Peace is not merely the cessation of hostility. It is a comprehensive term for salvation and life with God. The background to this use is in the Old Testament concept of shalom. 
which covers wholeness, physical well-being, prosperity, security, good relations, and integrity. It is much more positive than merely the absence of conflict. That's why Paul talks about Jesus at the cross both putting death to hostility and creating a new man. Right, Paul is saying when you cling to Jesus for your identity, when you rest in Him for your identity, He removes every basis for hostility and He makes you a new man. See, the dividing wall that gets mentioned in verse 14 is literally, in the passage, the dividing wall of hatred. And when Paul wrote this, he had a very literal wall in mind. The wall in the temple that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Gentiles, you see, couldn't go all the way into the temple. They had to stop in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't proceed past that wall. You see, the Jewish people, they had all these, all these things that got mentioned earlier in the passage. I mean, really good things. The law, citizenship, the covenants of promise, and so on. But you know what they also had? They had grasping hearts like yours and mine. And like us, they took what was good, and when they had attached their identity to it, it became the basis for hate, hostility, and separation. And Paul is saying that when you realize that Jesus came and died in your place for your hatred, for your hatred, right? Not for his. He put to death hostility in his death. That's what verse 17 says. When you get that, you realize that he made completely irrelevant all those distinctions you cling to for your identity and thereby look down on others for. He came to reconcile both Jew and Gentile through the cross, verse 16. Both those, both those far away and those near, verse 17. What he's saying is this. The ground at the foot of the cross is entirely level. Righteous, unrighteous, moral, amoral, Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, public schooler, homeschooler. Right? They are standing on equal footing, is what he's saying. Why? Because in Jesus, the basis of your identity is not your performance, not your ideology, not your race. It is grounded in the sheer grace and mercy of God. And what's the effect of of all of this? Paul says the effect of that is the creation of a new man. And what he's talking about is he's talking about an entirely new ethnicity, an entirely new race of man, a new kind of man. C.S. Lewis, he wrote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. This is good application for Southerners like us. Jesus didn't come to improve you. He did not come to make you nicer. He didn't come to make you better. He didn't come to refine you. He didn't come to make you more polite. He came to recreate a new humanity for himself through the cross. You know, a friend of mine told me about how he was in Walmart and he heard this kid screaming in in, in the store, right? Nothing unusual about that if you've ever been to Walmart. Um, if you've ever been to Walmart with me and my kids, you've, you've seen that happen. But what my friend saw when he turned the aisle wasn't what he expected, a child throwing a fit because he couldn't get candy or a toy or something. 
He saw a child on an aisle all by himself who was screaming and panicked because he had become separated from his mother. And while my friend was standing there wondering what he's supposed to do in this situation, um, this mother comes around the corner and she snatches up this child into her arms. She scoops him up into her arms. And he said the amazing thing about it was as he stood there, he said that child went from screaming bloody murder, completely panicked, lost, to being fast asleep within 30 seconds in his mother's arms. See, when you come home in the arms of Jesus, resting in his life, his death, and his resurrection for you, you come all the way home, right? Made whole and at peace. And there you realize that you are reconciled to both God and to one another through the blood of Jesus. Look, you can only get here by resting in Jesus for your identity when you finally stop grasping at anything and everything else, you are free. Your hands are free to grab hold of and to hold on to and find your identity grounded in the performance of Jesus, not your performance. Okay, finally, we have to practice something. Here's the question. How does all of this stuff shake out in the life of the church, right? In verses... 19 through 22, Paul uses some metaphors to describe, or images to describe the church. Uh, that's pretty obvious uh, from just looking at it. But I think the metaphors that he chooses here, I think they're meant to be more than just descriptive. In other words, I think they give us hints about the life we are supposed to live together. All right, here are the metaphors, the images. There are three of them. Paul talks about how the church is made up of fellow citizens. And then he talks about the church as a household. And and, and then he talks about the stones of a temple that are indwelt by God himself. And here's what I'm trying to get get at in this last point. As one author points it, each metaphor narrows the circle of intimacy. It gets tighter and tighter and tighter. So think about it. Fellow citizens, right, they're bound by their citizenship. You can be fellow citizens with somebody who lives in another state, who lives miles and miles away from you. But if you live in the same house, right, you're, you're only separated by a matter of feet uh, with those people. You're very close. And if you are stones in a building, you're even closer than that because you are stuck together, cemented together. Let me take a, a stab at giving us a, a few progressive points of application to think about. First... If you're a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you friends with other Christians who are very different from you? Because you need to be. Look, I, I am blessed to be an American citizen, as are you. Um, but, you know, that lumps me together with a whole mess of people <laughs> who are nothing like me. Um, we're very different, but bound by our citizenship. If you are only friends with people in the church who hold to the same positions, the same political views, the same socioeconomic status or race as you, you are not working this out. You are not living what Paul intends for you to live. You need to go back in these points and remember and rest. Jesus, the gospel, it needs to be the foundation of your identity. And therefore, it binds you to people who are very, very different from you. Second, 
You know, the great problem, as I've understood it for a long time, uh, with living in a household is a complete absence of privacy. Um, you know, I grew up with two sisters and a brother, and the great motivating factor for me to graduate high school and go to college was to get away from those people. I love them, I love them, but I never had five minutes by myself, um, right? There is no privacy. In a home, you do everything together. You work together, you play together, you share meals together, you share space together, you share your money together. You do everything together, right? There, privacy is gone. If Jesus has reconciled a, all of us to God, and therefore to one another as family, you should be feeling it. You should be feeling it infringe upon your privacy. It should be costly to you, financially and emotionally and even physically as you share space with other people. Are you practicing opening up your life and sharing space with other Christians? The other thing that comes to mind for me about families is, is transparency. You know, I have some friends who've seen me at very low points in my life, like, like you do, I'm sure. But no one has seen me at my worst like my family. You, you, you know, you may look nice to a lot of people, but your family knows what a jerk you can be. In, in Christian community, we don't just need we don't just need to see others pretend niceness on Sunday mornings. It's got to go beyond that. Right? We need to be transparent about our faults too. And I'm not suggesting that you should not be careful about this. But if no one else here knows your secrets, knows your flaws, knows your temptations, you need to go back and remember and rest in Jesus because I can guarantee you that you're hiding that stuff because something else has become your identity factor. And you cannot let that go. You've got to keep it trapped and held down, let nobody see. Because if they found out, your identity would crumble. See, the Christian community, when you understand who you are in Jesus, it frees us to be transparent with one another. Because we are already loved. Like we cannot be loved anywhere else in Jesus. Already fully accepted, already completely affirmed in Him. And finally, let's get, get real narrow. <laughs> you can do your own reading on this, but the privatized, individualized brand of Christianity in America of the 60s and the 70s, those are, they brought, it brought a lot of dysfunction into the church. These are not my words. You can read books on this. But just think about the imagery in this passage, right? It's beautiful, right? A temple. We are, the, we are the stones, Paul is saying, that go to make up this beautiful temple. But do you realize in this passage, read it through, God does not come down and indwell individual stones. That is not what this passage says. He comes down into the temple. You cannot know Jesus by yourself. You can't. The way you deepen your intimacy with Jesus is by deepening your relationships with other Christians, by doing life with other Christians who are very different from you, by sharing space with other Christians and letting them infringe upon you, by being transparent and vulnerable with other Christians. That's how we live this stuff out. Okay, final thing that I have to hit before we end. In this last image that we were talking about, the temple, right? Paul says that this temple and household, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
the teaching of the Bible, basically. And then it says in verse 20 that in this building, in this building, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Some of you know this. The cornerstone in ancient buildings, right, it was a foundation stone. Right? It was the primary load-bearing stone of the buildings. But it really did more than that. It did more than just bear the weight of the building. It determined every line of the building so that every stone that gets stacked is stacked in relation to that cornerstone. So the cornerstone had to be perfect. right? In other words, the whole building existed in the cornerstone. And all of a sudden, we are right back to this idea of identity. How do you relate to the cornerstone? That determines everything. For Paul, the idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, it's grounded in the Old Testament. He's pulling this language straight out of the Old Testament from places like Isaiah chapter 28 and Psalm 118, where we are told that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. Why was he rejected? He was rejected for you and for me. He was rejected in our place. He became the alien. He became the foreigner. He became the stranger. He was cast outside and crucified in order to bring you in. When that truth becomes our cornerstone, that he was cast out to bring us in, all the way in, home, when that becomes our cornerstone, our identity, the world will see the power of the gospel unleashed when wildly different people, like the people in this room, when they get together and share their lives together, when they become transparent with one another and they let one another infringe upon their lives, the power of the gospel is displayed in the world. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You now to confess that we have often and we regularly forget who we are in Jesus. And we grasp at all kinds of things around us. We grasp at anything within our reach to tell us who we are, that we matter, that we're important, that we have purpose. And it has made us so arrogant. It has caused us to treat others as beneath us. And so what we need is we need again, anew, afresh, to remember the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came and put to death the hostility. And when he died and rose from the dead, he created a new people, a new man, a people whose identity, whose basis for identity was not in their performance, but in your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray that this wonderful truth that it would set us free. It would set us free from our hiding, that it would set us free from our arrogance, that it would set us free 
to love one another as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.